everyone, welcome back to another episode of Almost Better Than Silence. I'm your host, Doug Coleman, here today with the other host, Matt Basta, and we have a very special guest, Jason Roberts of the Texting Podcast. How are you doing, Jason? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Oh, thanks for joining us. I'm a big fan. I feel like this guy right here is the role model of role models, people. So you got to listen to his podcast. It's great. <laughs> oh, yes, geez. That, that's quite an introduction. <laughs> it's true. I mean, seriously, you're an, a, an established entrepreneur. You're a, a great father from what I can tell. Like, I love your... uh how active you are in your son's life and like wanting to get these kids up to speed with math. Maybe we should start off by talking about some of this because I'm sure a lot of our listeners are like, what the hell is Doug talking about? Sure, sure. So uh, do you want to, you want me just to explain it or do you want to ask me some questions or how do you want to? Um, that's a good question. I guess, I guess what, who are you as, and what are you doing currently? Let's start there. Wow. Okay. Who am <laughs> I and what am I doing currently? Um, well, I currently, I am a I guess you'd say I'm a consultant or contractor for Uber. Um, that's that might be not the best explanation um, because I started with Uber back when there was like seven or eight people. It depends on your counting. I was either like the seventh or eighth person. Oh um, wow! Yeah, and I had known Travis since before he started Uber, and um, there's a whole story with that, and we can we can go into that if you like. Um, Certainly. So, you know, I've been I've been doing work for Uber since that time, um, and so that's sort of like my I don't know my day job. But I work from home, so and I'm officially a contractor, so I'm not a, a, a which gives me more flexibility, right? So I can kind of do what I want if I have other projects or things that I want to pursue in my time. I can as long as I get my you know my, the work done that I need to for for Uber. Um, and I guess lately my my big focus has been on a math, well, initially it's just been a, or so far it's just been a math class. I've been teaching an accelerated math class to uh, fourth graders two years ago. Now it was fifth graders this past year. It was the same group of kids. And it started out as just, you know, like 18 kids who had scored advanced on their math, you know, standardized tests. Um, and it started out just sort of as like a, a, a kids who, were, who wanted to be on our, our math team because in our particular in, in LA, all the kids participated in this big, I uh, think, a one-day event called Math Field Day. And so we had this group of 18 kids that the, that the you know, administration said, hey, these kids are, are sort of like, you know, good at math. They should, they should be, in, uh, you know, in consideration for the math team. So take them and then whichever kids do well or, you know, want to do it can do it. And so I took those kids and, you know, we participated in the Math Field Day event, but I kind of ran with it and last year really pushed them to the point where I started with, you know, algebra, but we finished up algebra, most of algebra to intrigue, some pre-calculus and did uh, even completed some calculus by oh the end of the year. Oh my God. Are you kidding me? These are That's like excellent. fifth graders? That's amazing. Yeah. 10 and 11 year olds. <laughs> and ha I'd say at least half of them are what you'd call economically disadvantaged. So this isn't like a bunch of, you know, Upper class, upscale kids from a from a you know wealthy area with all kind of private tutors and involved parents. I mean, I mean, not that the parents are uninvolved, but you know these aren't kids or families that have a lot of resources. I see, and it's just that's just amazing. How how do you approach uh, such young students with like higher level math? Or I mean, it's pretty amazing that you're capable of teaching this. It m makes me believe that no matter how young you are, you're capable of learning these if it's taught to you the correct way? Yeah, so, okay, so part of it is a little bit of a cheat in the sense that I have the, sort of the top 10%. I kind of call it like the varsity basketball team. It's not like these kids are all LeBron James, but it's at least the kids who might go out and play on the varsity basketball team, right? Or, you know, you take the kids, and it could be in anything, whether it's sports or music or art or academics. If you take the top 10%, which consists of kids that have some natural ability, you know, they're athletic or artistic or musical or whatever, or just, you know, good at math. And it's usually pretty closely related to their enjoyment of the, of the subject. Um, you know, I don't know if people or kids like things because they're good at them or they become good at them because they like them. I think there's sort of a positive feedback cycle there. I think it probably starts with some natural ability and then it builds on itself. But regardless, those are the kind of kids 
that I'm dealing with. I'm not taking kids who are below the, the, the mean or at the mean and, and accelerate them. I'm taking the kids who, you know, might be in sort of the honors class and be like doing, rather than just doing regular fractions, they're doing more advanced fractions with word problems, you know? Gotcha. And my perspective is that you can take those kind of kids and rather than accelerate them 20 or 30%, you can accelerate them 5x. And the reason I believe that is that, um, well, for a couple of, a couple of reasons. One is fourth, between fourth and seventh, eighth grade, if you look at the math curriculum, it's pretty much no man's land. I mean, they start learning fractions and stuff in fourth grade, how to multiply and, and do arithmetic with unlike fractions and things. And it doesn't really go much past that through seventh grade. I mean, it's literally like three or four years of just kind of nothing. You know, <laughs> that's just, true. You know, you look yeah. at it and you're like, I, you know, what are they doing? And then so that's a lot of free, that's a lot of time where you can just pick up a lot of ground. That's also before kids get completely distracted with sort of high school concerns, um, dating and uh, other activities that just, you know, totally preoccupy their minds. And so they have this, and they have just sort of a natural desire to, to learn. They haven't become cynical, like, well, what am I going to use this for? Why should I care about this? They're just sort of naturally good at stuff, and you're like, hey, you're good at this stuff. You want to get really good? You want to do stuff that kids way older than you're doing? And they're like, yeah, you know. And that's, all you, that's as much marketing as you have to do. Yeah, that's a great Let me approach. ask you something. So have sure. you thought about taking this approach and sort of you know, getting the, you know, the varsity basketball team of – uh, sort of upperclassmen and maybe doing like really high order mathematics and doing you know, differential equations and intense linear algebra and stuff like that? Yeah. So, yeah, it's funny, funny you ask that because so here's the thing. Um, at the end of this year, um, we had the, the superintendent for the uh, Pasadena School District stopped by I, and watched a class. Um, and, and the reason that happened is my wife is on the board of the Passing the Education Foundation, which raises and injects a lot of money into the school uh, district. Mm -hmm. And she introduced me to him at a fundraising event, and he heard about it. And when I just told him very briefly, his eyes, eyebrows kind of raised, and he's like, well, you know, I used to be a math teacher. He's like, I'd love to come by and, and see this. So he came by and brought a, one of his directors, and it was funny. It, it coincided with our very last day. It was actually just our pizza party day. And <laughs> So when I found out, we didn't even find out that he was going to show up until the night before. And so show up to class and all the kids, they didn't bring paper, pencils. I mean, they show up and they're like ready for their pizza and ice cream and stuff. <laughs> and then I'm like, all right, kids, the pizza is on its way. It'll be here at noon. But right now it's showtime. I said, the, the district, the, the, the superintendent stopped by and we are going to blow him away. Are you guys ready? And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, all right, so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to write a series of problems, challenge problems on the board. You're going to work in teams of three, and we're going to see which teams can solve the problems. And I was solving, I was putting up these word problems for like, you know, law of signs and cosines, like multi-step problems. Uh, I was doing um, actually word problems that required definite integra integrals. And I mean, it was crazy stuff, right? Wow. And the superintendent and the director are, are sitting there in the back with my wife sitting next to them, kind of talking them through it, like what is our philosophy and our method and everything. And their, their mouths are just dropped to the floor. They're like, what are we watching here? This is just insane. The kids are having a blast. They're having fun. They're making a lot of noise because they're all standing up and running around. And, you know, it's kind of like, more like practice than it is a class. And they're doing math that they would expect, you know, sort of like honors juniors or seniors to doing maybe. That's and a, oh, that's so good. <laughs> yeah, and so then the and then after the class, Sandy came. She's like, it couldn't have gone better. They want to start a pilot in like a few schools next year, and so that led into um, a handful of meetings uh, this summer with the district. And I was a little apprehensive at first because I thought, you know, bureaucracies and you know, governments and things. I mean, they're just going to be very resistant to doing anything. They're going to, but, you know, maybe, maybe there's some way we can make this happen. I said, at the very least, I hope they don't shut us down because we're totally went rogue. We're totally outside the system. Um, and, uh, 
luckily, a couple of things. I mean, the people who I've worked with, one lady who's in charge of innovation and intervention programs in the district, another lady who's in charge of um, uh, curriculum, are just super excited about it. They're like, we're, gonna, we're doing this. This is happening. And so they're, I'm kind of like leading the charge on it. They're like, okay, so what do you want to do? You know, how do we do this? And so I'm kind of the architect for it, and I'm kind of, you know, doing it. And it also helps that the, the superintendent just set down this mandate. He's like, make this happen. That's excellent. So, and so the, what, plan is, the plan is the, we're going to start in fourth and fifth grade next year. Um, it may be just six, you know, half a dozen schools. It could be as many as a dozen schools. And we're going to start in fourth or fifth grade, and then we're going to move up from there year after year. So they'll be done with differential equations. They'll have done uh, BC calculus and, some, and probably differential equations in by eighth grade. So coming into freshman year of high school, they'll be doing like sophomore level college math. And Excellent. I'm actually setting up an advisory board um, with professors and physicists from local universities. I've met with, I had breakfast the other day with the chairman of the Bazusa Pacific math department. Um, brilliant guy. Um, he, uh, you know, does undergraduate work at Harvard and got his PhD from UCLA. And, you know, we, he's like, yeah, I'll help you. He's like, I'll help you, you know, find instructors because we need to get a bunch of undergraduate level instructors to run these classes. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I'm going to get this advisory board from all these, you know, Caltech and Ox- maybe Occidental College and, um, you know, help so they can help me figure out and, and, and you know, what the curriculum should be for college, uh, for these high school um, kids. And, uh yeah, we're going to make, make it happen. So let me ask you something. So, you know, you have a plan for uh, these kids that are very excited about math and, and have the initiative, and you're going to expand this program out uh, to eventually cover, you know, most of high school. Um, do you have any sorts of plans or ideas or thoughts around bringing more kids that maybe aren't quite as excited about math into the, the program or having something for them? You know, you know, so, you know, that's actually not my focus. I mean, if you look at most education programs, they're focusing on that. If you go look at all these efforts, it's mostly getting kids who are struggling or aren't that interested in trying to get them, push them up the curve. And, but very few people are doing this and focusing on the kids sort of at the top. They're sort of left to their own devices. I mean, they're kind of stuck. Uh, they're a year, maybe a year ahead in math. And, and, they're kind of, and the way I think I don't know if everyone's thinking about it that that's clearly, but they're just sort of like, oh, they'll be fine, right? They're, they're, they get A's, they're an AP calculus or whatever. But the problem is these kids show up and they go to a good college and they're competing against kids who have way, way more preparation. Because um, when you show up at MIT or Princeton or Stanford or whatever and you're like, I want to major in math or physics, well, you're not just up against kids who took one year of calculus. You're up against kids who took calculus in ninth grade who did interna- the International Math Olympiad, whose parents were mathematicians or physicists, kids from Europe who took cal- who've had three or four years of, of calculus and analysis, and you're just blown out of the water. And my, my goal, is, my sort of thinking is like, how do we create, if we want to really move the needle in STEM, I mean, there's one, one important facet of it is getting the average kid, the mid, middle of the curve moved up a little bit. But the other thing is, how do we create more Richard Feynman's and Elon Musk's? Right. Yeah. You get the kids who, you get more kids who were like, oh, you know, I got, you know, because you run into these all the time, you get these kids who like, they were A students in math in high school, but they kind of bailed in college. And they went off and studied something else. But they really liked, you know, math and physics, and they could have gone on to do some things that they were really excited about, but they just didn't feel like they could compete. And they took more of a pragmatic uh, path in college. And I'd like to get, you know, like, how can we 10x the number of those kids, 100x them, you know, and so that we just have just tons of these kids coming into college who are just way, way more sophisticated in their mastery of math and, and physics and maybe even programming and some other things. And if you have that, I think it's like, just like when you're, you know, we talk about all the time in startups, increasing your funnel. And it's like one of the things is like, how do you get more people to the website to start with? Well, how do we get, if, if you want more of these, these type of world-class, you know, scientists and technology entrepreneurs, you want to increase that funnel from the start. And I think getting them, you know, in fourth and fifth grade 
and coming out of high school, and you, instead of you have 10 times the number they had before, then the chances are you're going to have kids who not only have the, the level of mathematical and problem-solving ability that they need to, to potentially be someone like those guys, but they also have these other characteristics that those type of people seem to have. You know, sure. so, I mean, right. I mean, it's like you, you might get a lot of real, people who are really, really good at math and, you know, or, or, or STEM and, or, or some aspect of STEM, but they just don't have the risk-taking ability or the social skills or the um, vision or whatever it is. Because you know, there are a lot of things that make me Elon Musk, Elon Musk, or Richard Feynman, Richard Feynman, right? It's not just being good at sure. solving math problems. But being really good at solving math problems or physics problems, that's a, that's a necessary but not sufficient condition. So, but if we have 10 times the number of those people, the chances, there's a higher probability that you're going to find people like that is sort of my thesis. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Um, another interesting thing about your passion for math, you have like, uh, I don't know if I want to say, like you have a plan for a card game. Do you want to talk about that at all? Sure, sure. Well, um, I... This has actually been in the works for a year. I've been working on it off and on. Um, I, 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 was, I guess I was working on problem sets, and I was trying to figure out, like, how can I get the kids to solve more problems but not make them feel like they're doing homework? Is there a way to kind of trick them into to doing more work? And, I mean, you have to make things a game. I mean, it's like, you know, okay, I'll use the basketball, you know, team analogy. It's like, you know, Basketball practice isn't necessarily super fun, but you go to it, you do it. But if there were like optional basketball practices in the week, you may or may not go. But you go, when I was in high school, you would go and play pickup basketball on 21 for hours. It was just fun. And you just got better at basketball because you were just playing it. And I thought, you know, what if I could create a game that was about solving math problems? So it was kind of modeled after, uh, you know, games like Magic the Gathering or Pokemon, where you like each have a de- collect- I guess they call them collectible collectible card games. Yes, and you attack with cards, so you would attack with a monster or a spell, and then you would have, and depending, you could play defense with certain cards and offense, and there was a lot of like bluffing and sort of trying to figure out what the other player had in their deck and what they were going to play. And I thought, you know, what if you could do that with problems? Like I had a certain type of math problem. And they could defend about certain types of problems, and I could, you know, hey, here's a problem on trigonometry, and if they miss it, like, oh, guess what? I have this other card that allows me to pick in my deck and find another trig problem because I'm going to double down because you obviously don't know how to do this. Yeah. And things like that. Sounds like a really interesting game. It has a lot of potential. I'm excited for it. It's, it's just really cool. Oh, thanks. So, so the name of it is Battle Math, um, and I've been working on it. Now, the only thing that's kind of slowing it down now is that in order to sort of scale this whole math program, I've just, I, I, the obvious way to do it is to use software to some extent. Because mm-hmm. if, if they're going to be like a dozen of these schools doing this program and you're having fourth and fifth grade, that's like, you know, let's say 20 or 24 classes running. And there's instructors in these classes and all the kids are doing it. And it's like, okay, so what are they doing? Like what problem sets are they doing? And I'm thinking, you know, if I have a, if I can use this, I have this all in a computer program so the homework is done on the web, and that's all the problem sets are done through the website, then we can optimize exactly which problems they should be doing using techniques of, of uh, spaced memorization or distributed practice, mixed review, um, and it'd be completely optimized for their personal strengths and weaknesses. And, um, and then of course, then I can track everything that's going on with every kid in every class in every school. And so if there are any issues, like, well, you know what, this fourth grade class over at Washington is suffering, uh, you know, let me talk to the instructor, let's see why the kids are, are having a hard time with factoring or, or whatever, and, you know, and, and make it work. Definitely. Have you uh, looked at doing any sort of partnerships? There's a lot of educational companies that try to do a good job at building educational software, and probably Doug and I are like the first generation that actually grew up with um, sort of the first generation of, of computer software that tried to make it like a game, but it didn't really work. I mean, it was like Compass and Study Island and all <laughs> yeah. that other stuff. Um, uh, number munchers. <laughs> uh, have you have you thought about doing any sort of partnerships with companies like that? You know, not really. I mean, I haven't seen anything out there that does what what I want to do, and I kind of want to replicate what I was doing manually with creating problem sets. Sure. I haven't seen anyone who uses space because the key, really, the the key is the space, the spaced uh, memorization uh, slash distributed practice 
and the mixed review. I mean, those are really powerful things that cognitive uh, researchers have known for going on 100 years, but which educators and academic publishers have, have pretty much just ignored. And if you want to learn something and not forget it in two weeks, you have to space out your practice of those types of problems, right? You do, sure. do some today, you do some tomorrow, you do some in a week, you do some in three weeks, you do some in three months. And you adjust that spacing depending on how you do at each particular interval. And that increases the probability that you remember it two years from now. But the way math in most subjects are taught is that you cover a unit, okay, I teach you the law of cosines, and then we take a test on it, and then maybe cover the midterm, but then you never see it again. Till the, maybe, the, maybe you see it in the final, or you see it on some kind of, you know, like a SAT subject exam or something. And that's absolutely the wrong way to do it. Everything we know about, learn, uh, memory, about how your memory works, like, that almost guarantees you're going to forget it. That's interesting. What, what are your thoughts on Common Core, then? Because it, it seems like a bunch of bullshit to me. Yeah, Common Core, I, basically, my understanding of it is that, because I've done some reading on it, I, I'm not an expert on it, but they tried to focus down on like the really the core skills they wanted kids to, to understand. So like the, the curriculum that I was looking at two years ago in fourth grade, it would, I kind of liked it. You know, they would do not just fractions and percents and decimals, but they would do a little geometry, a little probability, a little statistics, a little bit about functions. So they got to cover a lot of stuff. And they would introduce it early and then kind of build on it over the years. But instead, they cut all that stuff out, and they don't introduce it until way later, like 7th or 8th grade. And they just do a lot more kind of word problems with fractions. It's like, you know, rather than just saying, here's, you know, add one-third and three-fourths. They say, well, you know, John, he ate a third of a piece of pizza, and, you know, Sam ate three-fourths of a piece of pizza. You know, and then how do you, you know, how much pizza do they eat? You know, that kind of thing. And <laughs> <laughs> and they do a lot of that. I mean, it's like, okay, and they call it modeling, and sometimes they do a better job than others, and they just really, you know, they just, I don't know, they spend a lot of time on doing word problems, and they just really narrow down the curriculum. I think it's a mistake. I think, I think maybe that works for the middle of the curve. Let me put it this way. I mean, maybe if the middle of the curve, it helps them in their ability to, like, utilize math in real-world situations. But when you're talking about the top, you know, five or ten percent. It's really, really tedious for them. Yeah, they shouldn't have to be forced to do it. So I, d I was just interested on getting your opinion on that. But I guess we can steer a little away from math. We've gone on that for a little bit. But um, what initially got you into podcasting? It turns out that texting is the first podcast I ever laid ears on. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez. Um. Yeah. So Justin, my co-host, um contacted me out of the blue. I was being, I had a, I guess a call-in phone interview with uh, Jason Calacanis on his This Weekend Startups podcast. Okay. Mm -hmm. I, you know, he had, it was like episode number two or three or something like that, and he had um, asked, he had sort of sent some, or he made a comment in a previous episode. He said, hey, if you have a startup that you'd like, you'd want to ask some my question, ask, ask me some questions about, then uh, send an email to, you know, to this address or something. And so I had, I had had a previous startup um, called Prezo, which is like a web-based version of PowerPoint. And this is, and, and, and the problem is, is that I had a bunch of users, but basically had run out of money and it was just sort of a zombie. And mm -hmm. I was just going to shut it down, but some of my friends and people who I knew were just suggesting that I do some, try and do something with it. And I couldn't think of anything that was really worth my time. But I figured, you know what, I'll, hell, I'll send an email to Jason Calican and see what he says. Um, since he, he, he was asking for, uh, for people to, to, to contact him. So I did. And he's like, ah, I, you know, what should I do with this, you know, this website? And I have all these you know, users who are free. But then Google has a free version. And you know, this, it doesn't seem like there's a way to monetize it. And he said, call in. So I called in and I, you know, it was like a, I don't know, five or 10 minute call. And, and he ultimately, by the way, said, just shut it down. It's kind of waste your time. Move on, um, which is what I was thinking anyway. So Justin, who was listening or watching, I guess I was probably on YouTube watching it. It said at the, it showed at the bottom of the, um, the screen, Pasadena, California, Jason Roberts, Pasadena, California. And he had just moved to uh, Glendale, which is right next door to Pasadena from London and didn't know anybody, and he's like, wow, here's another technology entrepreneur just down the street, 
I should contact him. So somehow he found me and emailed me and or Skyped me, and we just started talking and uh, went out and grabbed some pizza and just shared war stories. And then he's like, you know, we should do a podcast because our conversation is kind of like a podcast. And uh, so we, I said, all right, well, what do you know about podcasts? And he's like, well, I used to have a band and I did a lot of the audio engineering so I could handle all the audio. Um, and so we just kind of brainstormed what it would be like, whether it would be a discussion show or something, an interview show. And uh, we said, all right, let's just do it. And um, he came up with this horrible name that I... <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> the worst name in podcast history. I don't, I don't know. I like it. It has that zing to it. So I know, <laughs> I know that you guys have on like occasionally throughout your episodes bring it up as like, oh, I wish we could have changed it. But I don't know. It, it, it's st- it stuck for a reason. I think it's still, it's classic. That's funny. Yeah, I, I, you know, he. Well, the way it started, the naming goes. He was like, we need something zingy, and I tech, and I said, all right, well, and then tech zing just popped out of my mouth. I'm like, I don't know, tech zing? And he's like, yeah, yeah, I like that. And then um, we were thinking of other names. I had a couple other names, and every one I threw out at, at my wife, she just kind of shook her head and goes, that's terrible. And I could not think of anything that was better. And so finally I was like, I remember, was it Dave Weiner? Do you guys know Dave Weiner? He was one of the guys who created RSS. Yeah. Yeah. He had always said, like, the names are not important. Just think of it. Whatever the worst name that's popped your head, just use it. And I was kind of, yeah, I was kind of in the back of my mind. And I was like, I wonder if that's true. And I was like, all right, screw it. Let's just go with Texing. I think it's a horrible name. Justin likes it. I can't think of anything worse. And it fits with Dave Weiner's advice. So we'll go with it. And Dave, I, you, Dave Weiner? <laughs> I've come to regret it. <laughs> that's funny. Well, horrible advice. I think what you want to do is come up with a name that you really feel connection to and then you really like and embrace and you're not embarrassed or, or wince every time someone says it and you're like oh god yeah that's i was lucky in coming up with our um our podcast name because i too am a musician and have a band and i constantly when i think of a song title i'll just jot it down and almost better than silence was originally just going to be a song title because that uh, was the idea and the only complaint with it i have is that how long it is it's a real mouthful but it's also just like a stab at most people probably aren't going to enjoy this. So. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, I mean us, me, uh, the the main host specifically. Our guests are what keep us alive. So, <laughs> right. So well, I, you know, I, I think what's most important is that you is that you have a if you have a name that you feel comfortable with. You know that you don't. That you like. I think almost better in silence is is a, is a good name. Um, Thanks. It's unique. Um, and uh, yeah, and again, you like it, so that's that's key. The problem is I don't like our name, so I, you know, which is frustrating. And you're like, you're the the name guy, like the go-to name guy when people have startups and stuff with empath, and yeah, I'm light. trying to think of others. Light, yeah, that's right. Crypto IQ and see, uh, you you have a great uh, affinity for those kind of like titles. Oh, thanks. Yeah, it's sort of ironic, isn't it? I, I can't even name my own damn <laughs> podcast. Like I said, Drip, I still I, think Drip is, Drip is probably my best known, I guess. Oh, that's, that's true. A, I like that one. That's what you know, guys know uh, Rob Walling. Definitely. And, uh, the rest of us. Yeah. Yeah, we went. The, the story was we were. Uh, so we, we became kind of buddies. He's been on the show four or five times and you know we we hang out our families hang out every once in a while so he's down visiting in pasadena we're at lunch and he's like i got this new idea for a startup and i think i'm I'm gonna call it like courier or silk or something he's like derek sivers really likes courier i think he was saying and i was kind of like i don't know we were sitting at lunch air in pasadena and and i went and i said i'm gonna go wash my hands real quick and i come back and then and i'm like i just named your startup he's like what what do you mean what are you talking about it's drip because he was like talking about it being drip marketing. I'm like, dude, that's just call it what it is. It's drip. And uh, he kind of, at first, he kind of resists. He's like, well, I don't know. I, and I'm like, trust me, it's drip. That's what it is. You'll, I, you'll come around. And then, like, within a couple hours later, he's like, oh, wait, I'm trying to preserve it. Did, you know, is it still there? <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. That one's. Because, uh-huh. you know, what I did is I went home after lunch and I went on like Domainer or something and I found some variations of it, like drip with two or three P's and get drip and stuff. And I emailed, I'm like, look, get drip is available. I think you should go with that. Definitely. Fantastic decision. 
So how did you end up in Pasadena? Did you grow up there or, or did you move? You know, actually, no, I'm from Atlanta, Georgia. Um, my best friend from um, high school went to college at uh, Pomona, which is one of the, Claire, uh, the Claremont colleges, I guess they call them, and, um, which is out just east of, of, uh, of L.A., uh, east of Pasadena. And um, he took off his senior year, no, his junior year um, to teach martial arts in Europe, of all things. And so, <laughs> but his senior year, when I was, after I had already graduated and I had been working on, um, in Chicago, he, oh, oh, he decided he was going to be a stuntman, which another random, because <laughs> <laughs> he's like going Quite to the pretty, life. Yeah, he he was going to this, you know, elite liberal arts college and studying literature and philosophy, and you know, he was in a martial arts and was a good athlete, but he, but saying he was going to be a stuntman, I just thought that was the weirdest thing. He he went to stunt school over the summer or something, and he's like, and and so his senior year, he actually. One of his first auditions or whatever, he got a, um, a job on this show called VR Troopers, which is an offshoot of our sort of a sister show to Power Rangers. If you guys remember Power Rangers, oh, totally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, and but they shot the location was out in Valencia, which was, and he and he found he's like you're not so far from Pomona. He's like, but Pasadena is kind of halfway between. I'll live in Pasadena. I can finish up my classes because you still had a full year of school left. And he, he used that as sort of his, um, you know, midway point. And um, when I came out and visited him, because I was, try- I, I, I was going to start my first startup, and I went to Scout, and I said, all right, well, if we're going to come out to L.A., where are we going to live? And he was living in Pasadena. And when I came out, I'm like, oh, this place is awesome. I want to live here. So, um, yeah, a couple months later, I brought my buddy Phil, who uh, was my co-founder, and we basically just moved out in Pasadena. Nice. nice. So then how did you get involved with, um, with Uber? Um, so when I was working at my first startup, uh, or not my, my prior startup called Prezo, um, the uh, web PowerPoint um, platform, um, I was sitting down here in Pasadena working on it. And, you know, nobody – this is like 2005. So this is – I'm using things like Ajax and stuff before I even knew what – before I even had the name Ajax. <laughs> Mm-hmm. You know, and the Web 2.0 stuff was just getting kickstarted, and the Web 2.0 conference had just happened for the first time, and and, and there's still there's this big hangover from the from the you know bust in 2000-2001. So, but I felt like it was coming back alive. But I'm talking about this 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 Web 2.0 kind of project I'm working on, and nobody knew what the hell I was talking about. You know, you know, friends of mine, and you know, they you know. These people use the web and stuff, but they didn't really understand it. And, uh, and my and my wife kept saying, you know, you should, you need to go up to Silicon Valley and like show some people what you're doing or something. And I, the TechCrunch blog had just started up, and it was just that it was just a blog, just like one dude writing it. And I remember that he was actually located in L.A. at the time. He was in Laguna Beach, I think. And and then I I, I saw that he was advertised or he had said you know he would do these like barbecue things where a dozen people would get together and barbecue at his place and if you're an entrepreneur he'd say hey if you're not working on anything cool come by and show us what you're doing and I thought that's kind of cool maybe I'll drive up there just show up to his barbecue and say hey guys let me tell you what I'm doing and then the next one and like the next one that came up there was he announced a sign-up, and 400 people, I think, signed up with a cap at 400 in like an hour. Oh, oh wow. wow. It was on a wiki. So, like, I kept refreshing the page trying to sign up, and I barely got I was like 300 and number 379 or something. And I'm like, holy crap, this is going to be a big party, not just a barbecue. And so I was like, all right, well, I guess – I tell my wife, I'm like, well, I guess I'm going to drive up to this TechCrunch party um and my wife's like okay and you know and so i get my car and the next that next weekend or whenever it was i drive up there and it's up in atherton which is kind of i don't know it's south of san francisco in the silicon valley area somewhere it's right next to where i live okay so you know i don't even know where it was i just map and i went there and and so and it's this and i drive it's this really nice neighborhood and 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 there are cars it just seemed like for like a mile and a half parked on side of the road (laughs) 
And I was like, holy crap. So I had to park. I really had to park. I had to like walk for 15 minutes from where I parked, which felt like to get to the house. And there's like camera crews out there and just people and security guy. It was just, it was bedlam. It was insanity. It was like the biggest frat party you'd ever seen in your life where it would spill oh. out front yard, backyard. It oh was my God. crazy. I was like, so I was like, okay, this is going to be interesting. I walk in and I see. It's just a sea of people, and I don't know anybody. <laughs> and I was like, okay, so uh, I start walking or walk, kind of wandering around. But you, know, you remember going to these parties? I, re- I mean, maybe these, you've been to clubs or parties since then or like this, but I remember when I would go to college, sometimes these like – all our parties where I went to college were pretty much at the frat parties. That was the entire social life. And if you, if you went to one of these parties, you literally couldn't move. Like you could not navigate through the sea of people. You would move at like one step every 30 seconds. It was so packed. Yeah. And that's what this place was like. And in college, it kind of – they obviously sucked, but at least you knew a lot of people, so you'd kind of push your way through and be like, hey, what's going on? You know? So I'm still <laughs> here, but I don't know anybody. Oh, man, that's ultra awkward. Ugh. I'm like, well, this was such a good idea after all. And I had – it turns out that I had um, – I knew one guy – I can't remember if I knew him. I guess, yeah, I guess I knew one guy um, – I got the name of a guy named Chris Messina who uh, went on to create the hashtag for Twitter. You guys oh, know wow. that? Okay. Yeah, he was originally the designer for Flock, if you remember that browser. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so um, much later when I co-hosted the, uh, the bar camp LA, he stayed at my place and we got to be kind of friends. But So I, someone gave me his name. I can't remember who it was. And they said, oh, if you're up there, I think Chris Messina is going to go. You can say hi to him. So I go up to him. And it's like, I know somebody, <laughs> you know, like practically grab onto them, you know, before the current wipes you away. And I talked to him for like 10 minutes, 15 minutes until you kind of run out of things to say and they're kind of ready to move on. And so then I'm kind of stuck and I'm circling around trying to figure out if I can find anyone I could talk to. And then I realize I get no one to talk to. This is a nightmare. This is totally awkward. So then I see that there's sort of this, um, uh, I forget what you call it, like there's just a fire pit out there. Mm-hmm. And and I was kind of cold, so I figured, you know, I'm just going to stand by the fire pit and warm up. And it turned out it was a perfect strategy because you could actually stand the next to the fire pit doing nothing but warming your hands and not look like a total idiot, you know? Because <laughs> <laughs> if, if you're walking around a party and you don't know anybody, and you, you, you look kind of like a weirdo, you know, like, what's that guy doing? Yeah, who's, who's he? Me. That he being me. <laughs> <laughs> people, I'm thinking people are looking at me like, that guy's just standing there. He doesn't know anybody. That guy, look at that guy. And so I'm sure nobody paid any attention to me, but that's obviously, you know. Yeah, the social anxiety of it all. Yeah, that's how I felt. I'm like, oh, this is, this is just terrible. I so, like, I was so stupid to drive up here. And so I'm standing by the fire pit, and what ended up happening is, like, one after another, people would come up, and they would stand in the fire pit. They'd look at you and be like, hey, man, what are you doing? What are you working on? And it was perfect. I remember talking to Tom Conrad, who was the CTO of Pan- uh, uh, Pandora talking to the guys who started G-Talk. It was like one after another. Nice, and then nice. I'd tell them what I was doing, and they're like, oh, that's cool. And so it was great, right? It was exactly the most strategic position you could be in. Awesome. So it did, it did work out. It did work out. And then, so to answer your question, a guy named Travis Kalanick comes up, and he has this like junior VC in tow, and he's like, hey, man, what are you working on? You know, kind of his high-energy way. And I start talking about it, and he's like, what? That's incredible. You know, he's like, that's amazing. <laughs> a, web, a PowerPoint and a web page, you know, because this is 2005, right? And sure. this is all, G, Gmail was out, but the, Gmail and Google Maps were about the only examples of this kind of Ajaxy stuff. So he's just right. blown away. And he's like, man, I would hire you in a second. That's awesome. And he's telling me a little about his startup called Red Swoosh, which is sort of like a, uh, I get a commercial version of BitTorrent, is sort of how I would describe it. Okay. And so, I guess we must have exchanged numbers. I don't really remember, but I remember meeting him. Um, but oh, and just finish up the night. Like Michael Arrington, uh, towards the end of the night, he comes up and he comes to the fire pit and he sees me. He's like, "Hey, he's like, what are you working on?" And I tell him, and he's like, he "Has the same reaction. That's amazing." He's like, "As soon as you're ready to release it, just let me know. I'm gonna blow it up on TechCrunch." And sure enough, and then he, and then later he's like. He's asking me, he's like, so where are you from? And I say, oh, I drove up from Pasadena. And he's like, what? You drove up here from Pasadena? 
He's like, I am so honored. That's amazing. And I was like, well, you know, I wanted to, you know, meet you and maybe meet some people and talk to you. And he's like, he's like, oh wait, you got to come on. I, you got to show, tell Scoble what you're doing. And by the time oh, there's wow. only like ten or twelve people left, well, he's like, stick around, stick around. He's like, I got to go say goodbye to some people. Stick around. I want you to introduce you to Scoble and some other people. So, um, I, you know, most people leave, and then, um, you know, I stick around there and and uh, you know, he's like. You know, Arrington, Michael Arrington's like, no, I don't believe what this guy built. Tell him, tell, tell him what you're doing. And I tell him, and Robert Scoble is pretty much half asleep on the couch at this point. It's like one of them. <laughs> and he kind of opens his eyes like a little bit. He's like, wow, that's great. You're amazing. Or that's really cool. And then there's a few other people and we sit around talking and, and I, and he's like later, Mike Eric is like, he's like, well, where are you staying? I'm like, well, I'm staying with some friends in Oakland. He's like, ah, oh, man, just stay on my couch. Don't worry about driving this late. So I end up sleeping on uh, his couch that night, <laughs> 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 which was kind of crazy. And, uh, you know, and then there's like his house is just full with entrepreneurs who are kind of living there. A guy named Nick Kubrick, I think, is his name, or Kubrick, but um, and some other some other random people. So that's all that's all that whole evening happened. But I kept in touch with Travis, so he would. I inv- I had co-hosted Bar Camp Two O. Do you guys remember Food Camp and Bar Camps? Do you guys remember that stuff? Not personally. That. So back in like 2005. Um, O'Reilly, uh, what's his, uh, Dan, was it Dan O'Reilly, the guy who does O'Reilly Publishing, O'Reilly Media? Yeah, so he, he, he hosted this um, conference called um, Foo Camp, and it was invite only, and they, they invited, I don't know, like 100 or something entrepreneur technologists who were working on the really the coolest stuff that, that they had seen. And it was, a, and everybody went there. It was like a two-day thing, and kind of can't, you kind of camp out or stay there the whole weekend at the, at the sort of I don't know, with this campus or wherever they're at. And everybody came away from it going, that was the most amazing thing, and the stuff people work on is just incredible. And, but, well, a lot of people who didn't get invited were kind of bitter about it because they're like, you know what? I'm working on way cooler stuff than a lot of these people, and I get invited. This is kind of bullshit. And Chris Messina, who I mentioned earlier, the, guy, the inventor of the hashtag, <laughs> um, he and two other people, I don't remember who they were. They were in a car, and they said, oh, they were talking about it, and they were all kind of, talking about how they were unhappy they were that they weren't invited or whatever. And they thought, let's create something called Bar Camp where anybody can come. The only rule is you have to give a talk yourself. Hmm. So, you know what? It can be about your startup. It can be about some cool open source library we're working on or some technology, but you have to give a talk. That's cool. Yeah. So you just show up and you write on a board. You pick a time slot. Like I'll be in this room from this time for this half hour, and I'm going to give a talk on, you know, it could be really, you know, deep, dark technical knowledge about some obscure topic, or it could be something more startup marketing or social graph theory, I don't know, whatever, right? And so when you get there, you just go, all right, here's I'm going to give a talk, but here are all the talks I'm going to go to. So you just jump from talk to talk to talk, and. He did one in San Francisco, and I was thinking about going up to it, but I, I just, I, for some reason, I just it conflicted with some schedule. I couldn't get up there, and I thought, you know, I'd like to do this in L.A., maybe host it. And right when I was thinking about that, some guy posted that he was interested in doing it, and I contacted a guy named Kareem Mayan was his name. And those two guys, a guy named Sean Bonner from Boing Boing. Do you guys know Sean Bonner? Does that sound no. familiar? And a guy named Ian, oh, I can't remember his last name, but he started uh, Topspin Media. Well, the four of us, well, really it was Kareem and I. Those two, uh, Ian and Sean kind of jumped on more at the end. But we just organized um, Bar Camp LA and, you know, had a couple hundred people come. And I called up Travis and I'm like, hey, do you want to come down and talk about Red Swoosh? And he's from LA. So he's like, yeah, yeah, I'll come down and visit my parents and give a talk. And so that's how we kind of became friends. And ever since then, or from that period for the next, over the next few years, he would call me you know maybe once every few months and be like hey man when are you moving to the bay area you know what what are you doing or you know what you know and you know and he he i used to be like i'm gonna learn how to program this you know learn to program will you teach me or <laughs> something like that <laughs> or what do you think about this idea you always have some new idea and so um and that was like how our conversations would go and then one day in i think he gave me an initial call like september or no like maybe october november of 2010 and he's like, hey, I got this new thing I'm working on. I want to give you. A, I want to talk to you about it. And then he's like, oh, but I got to talk to you later. And I'm like, okay. And then he calls me up in December, and he's like, listen, I invested in this company called Uber Cab, and it's like you have a car, and you can 
call it up from your phone. It'll pick you up and take you somewhere. And I'm like, okay. And he showed me this sort of uh, Google, a Google map thing. We just screen share something. And I see this Google map, and it has like five cars driving around San Francisco. And it looked really chintzy. I, mean, I was like, this is, wow, this is half-baked. And he's like, he's like, dude, I'm going to come on and be, I invested in it, but I'm going to come on and be the CTO, our CEO, because I think this is going to be, this is a huge technology play. And the guy I have running it is a good sort of startup hustler, but he, not, he doesn't have the technical background to do this. Um, so I'm going to come on. And he's like, but we're having all these problems with the, with the technology, all these double dispatches and no dispatches. And he's like, I think these guys are pretty good web developers, but they didn't have the background with like algorithms and real-time systems that I had had you know, when I'd done like algorithm, my, my previous life doing algorithmic trading. Sure. And he's like, I want... He's like, he's like, dude, you're the CTO. He's like, I, I want you, he's like, he's like, I'm going to fly down there next weekend. I'm going to convince you to jump on. He's like, but, you know, move to San Francisco. We're going to blow this thing up. Oh, and my God. I was like, in fact, you know what? Funny thing is I actually recorded that conversation accidentally because, because Justin and I had lost, maybe a few months before that, had lost a, an entire show because his recording failed. And so we installed something like it was like some of these callback recorder or call recorder or something, and it would record automatic record every Skype call that I had. Yeah, I'm oh, using wow. it now actually as our backup. Uh, Super Tintin is the one I'm using, so check it out. <laughs> yeah, there you go, right? And so I had it on; I'd forgotten about it. And when I was changing computers, I was I looked at all these calls, and most were calls with like my mom or some friend. And then I click on one; it was that actual conversation with Travis. And he's like, dude, we're going to blow this thing up. And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you know it's like, it's like uh, you know, I, I, don't, I didn't say this to him, but I was thinking like, you know, like high-frequency trading, artificial intelligence. I mean, that's, uh, that stuff is cool. Like taxis and limos and stuff, that's not cool. That's kind of lowbrow, just, you know, I don't know. Just, just not really interesting to me. Um, so that's kind of one of the reasons that I wasn't that excited about it. Part of it, it was like I was only going to get like a few percent of this start of his startup, right? It wasn't my startup, and I was going to have to move to San Francisco um, to do it. And my wife had just been elected to be the president of the Pasadena Junior League, which she had worked a couple years for, and I didn't want to take that away from her. And I didn't want to be one of the kind of dad that like you know flies out of town on Monday morning and comes back on like Thursday or Friday. Mm, and yeah. so I said, you know, I just it's, it's not I'm, it's not doesn't seem like that exciting of a company. I'm not not attracted to it. It's not like we're building you know something that I, I just have I ha- just had I have to build, and I'm only getting a few percent of this company, and I would have to really kind of change my whole life that I don't and I don't really want to do that, and I don't want to do anything that screws up my family life. So I turned him down. I sent him an email, like then a couple of days later, and I said, you know, Travis. I really appreciate the offer. Um, I'm honored that you'd want me to be the CTO, and I think you're a great entrepreneur. And I, and I, you know, sounds sounds like there's a potential there, but I'm, I'm gonna have to decline. Um, I said, however, I know you guys are running into a lot of problems with the technology. I'd be happy to do some consulting work for you. And he, I think he had like a one word reply or one sentence, probably like, "Hey, you know, okay, that's fine." And I think he was just kind of disappointed, but. He could tell by my email that I wasn't going to be changed my mind, but I didn't want him. I didn't want him to come down to L.A. and give me the big pitch because I had a feeling he would probably convince me. <laughs> sure. And so I just wanted to short circuit that. And so about, I guess a couple weeks after that, or maybe a week after, right around Christmas, he um, he rented a beach house in Marina del Rey, which is uh, south of L.A. Right, you know, right on the beach. And he's like, look, I, I'm bringing the team down. He's like, I want you to come out and give, give us the architecture for the, uh, for the, for the platform. Give it, we, you know, cause we need new architecture. This, this, what we have just isn't working. And he's like, I want diagrams or whatever. And so I was like, okay. Um, so I drove down and I get there and first he's not even there, but then he shows up a few minutes later with with this other guy, a guy named Curtis, who was sort of his number, his sort of his first-hand man as previous at, at Red Swoosh. And he's like, he's like, and he shows up, and they just gotten back from um, Staples, and they have this like three-by-four-foot whiteboard, and he sticks it on a 
uh, a chair when it's like, yeah, he sticks on a chair and he's like, all right, give me the architecture. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, all right, well. Just lay it on him. What's that? <laughs> just lay it on him. Just, it's just yeah. right there. Just jump just right it. in. I mean, look, he walked in. It was just like, he I mean, literally just took the plastic, the, 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 the sort of plastic wrap off it, takes it and sticks it there and hands me a pen. He's like, right, give me the architecture. And I said, all right, well, first of all, I think we should build it in Node.js. And he just pauses, looking at me, and he's like, what the fuck is Node.js? <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, dude, I totally read a blog post about it last night. <laughs> <laughs> I actually didn't say that. I said, look, well, I said, listen, I said, it's JavaScript that runs on a server. It's really fast, um, way faster than, you know, your normal scripting languages, but it's single-threaded, so we don't have the complexity of C++ or even Java, but it, it, so it's, it's single-threaded, and it's fast, and it's JavaScript, which means that if we hire people, it's easy to get them up to speed. And um, there's a, a guy we had interviewed on our show, on our podcast, a guy named uh, Amir Salenhefedek had built a real-time social network in Japan called Plurk, and he said they had something like 200,000 concurrent users. Wow. Oh and I like look, and he had since and, and since that time had given a talk, a Google tech talk on on that. And I was like, well, if that would work for Plurk, I mean, we can handle, you know, a couple hundred cars if it got up to that many cars. I mean, we had, at that time we had like ten cars or something, you know. And he's like, all right, uh, okay, well, that sounds crazy, but okay. And then I just kind of drew some boxes, and it was sort of sort of derived from my experience building real-time uh, trading systems and back in the early 2000s and, and uh, you know, everything I'd learned from that. And then Curtis, who was, like I said, was uh, Travis's number, his first-hand man from, um, from Red Swoosh and then later Expensify, um, he added in some ideas from how they built Red Swoosh um, and this multi-tier real-time model. So we kind of mind-melded our, our ideas and between the two of them, that really became the architecture for all the real-time systems at Uber. Um, oh, nice. And so then I went back and just started – well, at the time, the dispatch system was built in PHP, and it was just – it was it had just been outsourced. So it, it – okay, so let me back up here. So when Travis started UberCab with Garrett Camp – Garrett Camp is the um, founder of StumbleUpon – Mm -hmm. oh, um, wow. My understanding of their conversation was that Garrett was like, you know, if we're going to do this thing, I have, I ha I know this guy or this little consulting firm down in Mexico. They do good work. It's really inexpensive, and they can build this thing. Because initially, they were just going to build an app so that they could like timeshare a car that maybe like five of them could use. Mm -hmm. And if you aren't using the car, then I could call the driver, kind of thing. And so it wasn't like this big vision it was just like how can we get some little app together that so that you know we can share this car together and it wasn't till so they went off they you know got this consulting firm in mexico to build this you know app, this iphone app and a little bit of a php backend on the cheap and then i guess at some point around then travis was like hey you know what why don't we make this bigger rather than just five of us share a car like anybody can call the car and so they told their friends about it, and it started to expand. In fact, I asked Travis, this is, you know, I asked him, I think it's probably in early 2011. I was like, well, when, or maybe 2012, I was like, when did you first know that Uber is going to be a success? And he's like, you know, it was 30 days after we launched the car, and we had 10 rides in a single day. And he's like, I knew it was going to work. So that was at the end of June of 2010. So by so, December, when I came on, I don't know, there, there may be like 10 cars or something like that, seven cars or whatever. And um, so this, this, this whole back end was really just a PHP API. So the, the driver phone and the client phone, they would every, every four seconds would send a me, an XML message to this one PHP endpoint when it would just parse the, parse the XML message and then do a, run a SQL query in MySQL. Mm -hmm. And they were running into problems because they were getting kind of dual dis dual, two dispatches at the same time, and it was it was just having problems. So I, when I came up, when I was thinking of the architecture, I'm like, look, you know, if you have a hundred cars or something, 
all sending messages every few seconds, just continually updating their latitude and longitude and the, and the client's status, whether you're requesting a car or canceling a trip or a driver saying, here I am, I'm on duty, I'm off duty, I'm on a trip, whatever. Like you don't want to every single time they send a message, go and grab, do a SQL query to get that data, update it, and stick it back in the database. Right. Like just keep that in memory. Yeah. Um, because it's my background in trading. It's like if, if you have an object that represents a stock like Microsoft or something – or Google, like, you don't want every single time you get an updated bid or ask price or something, you know, 20 times a second, you don't want to up do a SQL query. That's stupid. No. You just have some object like a Java or C++ or whatever you're building in it, and it just represents it, and you, you just update it. Maybe you periodically write that stuff out to some kind of database in some efficient way, but that's a whole separate process. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of the thing I had in mind, and so that's what we, that tra- uh, Curtis and I built. And what we did is... Um, you know, the, the, the PHP that ran this dispatching system was so bad and so convoluted. It was like, uh, you know, thousands of lines of just like, of a, of a single function of just if, else, else, if, loop, switch. Ooh. Like you just, you Yikes. couldn't unwind it. Um, I initially was like, let's just refactor this thing, go through a few rounds of refactoring, and then maybe we can <laughs> transition it to, to Node. But... After spending four or five hours with it, I turned to Curtis and I said, you know, I think we're actually going to have to rewrite this. This is so bad. I just don't think it's salvageable. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. he had been trying to understand the schema, and it, which is equally bad. It was just inconsistent and crappy. And, and uh, so what we did is um, I just got like a couple days of log files from all the messages and, uh, and just kind of reverse engineered what the messages would be and then – built a no, an equivalent node system that would sort of replicate the behavior that the PHP system was doing. And, um, and that was the first stages, and slowly we evolved it and improved it and took out XML, priest it with JSON, and made the thing horizontally scalable over the years and all that kind of stuff. But that's how it all started. Interesting. That's I, know that's a much longer, I know that's a much longer explanation than you were looking for. <laughs> it's great. That's exactly that's what... Good. Yeah, that's what our listeners are tuning in for. So that's great. So what does your role as a, as a consultant for Uber sort of entail now? Are you still heavily involved in, in the back end and the architecture? No, actually, it's kind of funny. You know, um, so when I started, there were two back end developers, um, Ryan McKillen and uh, Conrad. Um, and uh, so Ryan and Conrad, and then they just hired this guy named um, Jordan to work on the mobile app. And then Curtis and I came in together. Um, and so back then, like, you know, when you're that early, you just like do everything. So I built the dispatch system, and I built Godview, and I built the simulator, but all this stuff. But then over time, like now, I think we have somewhere like 800 developers or something like that. Oh, wow. And, um, so, you know, and since I'm not up there, I'm not in, in the office, um, you know, it's kind of hard to explain this, but I guess because I built so much foundational stuff, I guess I have kind of a, 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 a I don't know what you want to say, like a good position there. I call myself kind of Professor Emeritus or something. <laughs> so, like a tenure. Yeah, they come up, they're like, hey, this is Jason, he built... The dispatch, the first dispatcher got you, and now there's like you know 100 guys who work on dispatch, or 100 people work on dispatch, mm-hmm. and so you know, but it, it's kind of hard for me to slot in on some of that stuff. So I'll just work on like one-off stuff. So I ended up, you know, spent a while building GridView, which was like this web ba- uh, uh, UI for managing all of our systems, our and monitoring all of our back-end real-time stuff, and then. Um, since then, I've been working on a new version of the simulator to simulate, you know, thousands of drivers and cars that feed into the the new version of dispatch that's being built out. So, um, you, you know, basically, Amos, who ba- who runs real time now, he it's funny when when he started in uh, like about ten months after our I came on, and he was like a junior developer, but now he runs all of real time. I mean, he's twenty seven or something. Super oh, super wow. smart guy really hard working um but he was just like you know the the junior dev right he took over the simulator from me and uh you know he wanted to help out in the dispatch so he started taking over you know working on dispatch stuff with me and then you know over time you know i would move on to other stuff and then he took all that over and it just ran at you know evolved into running all the real time the entire real-time group and um 
So now he'll just like I'll go up there once every four to six weeks to be like, hey, you, you know what? It, could you build like a new version of the simulator for the system, or could you build? We need like a UI for the grid, you know, the grid, and and I'll just do it. And unlike a lot of the developers, I mean, like most companies, you have all these developers working together in teams, and they're code reviewing and pull requesting and you know, just doing everything together. I'm kind of an off and an island. <laughs> I just kind of do my thing. And then I just kind of like, oh, here you go, it's done. And they kind of humor that. <laughs> They're like, yeah, okay. You know, I'm, I'm able to deliver cool. my stuff. And- I feel like that's kind of liberating, though, because you have your own little freedom. Yeah, no, I mean, it's a very lucky position to be in. It's, a pri- it's definitely a privileged position to be in. And nice. as long as I can create value and I don't create a- and I-, I-, I can do things on my own and I don't like hold anybody up or whatever, it works, it's- it's- it works out. Um, Cool. So, so yeah, you know, um, that's kind of my role. I shoot up. There. In fact, I just got back last night. I go up there about once every month or so, and I shoot up there for a few days and hang out and write some code and, you know, just kind of, you know, yeah, that's pretty much it. <laughs> <laughs> cool. But but in case people are wondering, which I'm sure they are, uh, I, I about a year after I started when I actually the first trip up to San Francisco, um, a Travis. Came to him and he's like, "Hey man, like, I know you're a consultant and everything, but you've built so much great stuff for for us. Like, you deserve some equity." So he just, you know, said, "Here you go." Just handed me um, stock options. You know, like that had to take you know a four year vesting period or whatever. But sure. uh, you know, what the funny part of it is, you know, which he didn't have to do, obviously. Yeah, that's know? great of him. Yeah, I mean, and it, and it's a fraction of what I would have had, obviously, if I'd come on as a CTO. But um, he didn't have to do anything. Um, but he did it. Um, I mean, I guess maybe he thought he, he did it. Maybe it was somewhat self-interest. He said, hey, you know, Jason's done a lot of good stuff. I, want him, I don't want him to go anywhere. If I get some options, he'll probably stay around longer. So, you know, I, I don't think it was entirely um, uh, without self-interest. But he did, and, I, and I've always appreciated that. But, um, uh, oh, you know, I, whew, I lost my train of thought on that. But um, maybe I'll come back to it. But that's, that's, uh, that's sort of how things played out and uh yeah it was it was i felt like it was uh you know obviously lucky that that, that worked out that way so as a sort of a follow-up um what sort of advice would you give to somebody that's maybe either thinking about starting a company or sort of has some sort of prototype together and they don't have their own jason roberts to sort of come in and, and tell them to use node <laughs> um well you know you know what's really interesting about this because i use this as an as a as an illustrative example to a lot of entrepreneurs is that Uber ran off PHP and MySQL built by on the cheap for an entire year. Mm-hmm. They didn't build it in React and, you know, Scala and just or you know, they just I mean even in 2010 PHP and MySQL was not cool, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sure. I mean, it was not cool. It was not, not sexy. sexy. Was, no. No, I mean, um and it, it didn't matter. It didn't matter. The tech didn't matter. It was sufficient for the job. And yeah, there were some technical problems, whatever. But it wasn't enough to keep people from using it. People loved it. Um, and yeah, drivers would be like, oh yeah, sometimes I get dispatch problems or whatever. But in the end, they they loved it because they made money and it worked. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so, you know, people thinking too hard about using really advanced tech, um, I think, is probably putting the cart before the horse. I mean. You you just want to get the simplest damn thing that'll work, however cheaply you can do that. I mean, even if some of it's manual or whatever. I mean, I I was only necessary, you know, six months after they launched. You know, at that point was when Cur- Travis was like, you know what, I'm going to bring Curtis on, I'm going to bring Jason on, and we're going to get this platform. We're going to we're going to build this thing correctly. You know, until then, you know, the guys he hired. I mean, I think. Conrad was in grad school for like physics or something and kind of deciding he didn't want to do his PhD and he was a friend of Garrett Stamps and he's like, hey, why don't you come work on this? And he knew a little Python, so he's, he built some back-end Python stuff and kind of tried to keep the PHP alive. And RM, I don't think he had a lot of experience coding. He's been coding a year or two. These weren't like high-powered guys. They were just guys that, that they could hire. And, um, you know, so, you know, I, I think I think the lesson is don't obsess over the tech. Um, build the, the, you know, 
you know, I mean, don't purposely make it crappy, but don't worry if it's crappy because if all you have is a couple thousand dollars, then just build build something crappy that actually works from a business case. And if you run into scaling problems three months later or six months later, great. Like that's a great problem to have. Cool. Yeah, good advice. Thanks for joining us, Jason. It's been a pleasure. Uh, where could our listeners find you if they want to hear more of you? Well, you go, I, I guess our podcast is, the, is probably the best. Go to techzinglive.com. Um, we, my co-host and I, uh, Justin Vincent, we put on a show once every couple weeks-ish. Um, and, you know, we, we talk a lot about projects we're working on or, you know, occasionally we interview people. Um, but that would be the best. That would be the best place definitely and um listeners if you enjoy our show you can uh give us a rating or review on itunes we'd really appreciate it and if you want to get in touch with us you can always email us at almost better than silence at gmail.com and we have a facebook and twitter and all that stuff so get in touch with us people and uh anything you want to add before we go matt um no <laughs> well, that's good with no, me. I, I don't have anything to do. Not a problem. Um, right, oh, well, oh I, I do actually have something. Oh, you um, liar. I know, I'm the worst. Uh, today, uh, the day that we're recording this, the last episode of Almost Better Than Dragons went out for season one. Um, so if you haven't listened, now is uh, the perfect opportunity to start going through season one uh, before season two starts in September. Yeah, get caught up, people. Season two is going to be ridiculous. But uh, we'll see you next week. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks, Jason. Oh, thanks for having me on, guys. It's been a lot of fun. Awesome. Take care.